welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 95, What Doest Thou Here? Hello, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. I am at my grandparents' house again. If you listened a few weeks ago, you know I recorded out in their garage with a blanket over my head so that the sound would be nice. Um, today, I've upgraded a little bit. I'm back at my grandparents' house in Wyoming, uh, but I'm upstairs in a, a loft above the garage in my mom's sewing room. So I still had to hide from some people, but I, I did get an upgrade. I don't have a blanket over my head. <laughs> um, okay, this week is going to be a little bit different. Um, and I am excited about it. And I think that this week is just, it's such a cool week. Um, however, the reason I'm doing two isn't because of the content from this week. It's because I think last week deserves one more episode because I just have so much to say about Elijah. So I'm going to do one more episode about Elijah today. And then tomorrow I'm going to release an episode about this week's content. So try and be here for both. Both are going to be awesome. And with that, let's just dive right in. So what do we know about Elijah? Elijah is a really important figure in, in the history of the world, in the history of the gospel. So Elijah was a Tishbite, which curiously, we don't actually, historians don't know what that means. Typically, whenever a prophet or or a figure of some kind, whenever it, it states where they're from, we uh, know, can figure out what that means. But, but Tishbite, which is mentioned several times throughout the chapters about Elijah, is something that we we really don't know what it means. So I think that's it, very interesting. Um, he lived also in, I don't, I think, I guess Tishbite would be like his nationality, maybe. I don't know. Um, but then he lived in the in the hill country east of Jordan called Gilead. And also, interestingly, for somebody so important, we know nothing about his ancestry. Another thing we know is that he was translated. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, it says, There appeared a chariot of fire, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. There's tons of art about this. And and it sounds pretty sweet. It's not even um, just a chariot of fire, actually. It says uh, horses of fire. So that's pretty cool imagery. Uh, he was also, so as he was, he was translated, he was taken up, but he wasn't resurrected, of course, until Jesus Christ was resurrected. So he was resurrected at the same time as Jesus Christ. The phrase mantle of the prophet that we use today originated from the way that Elijah anointed the next prophet, Elisha with an SH. Um, Elijah was the last Old Testament prophet to hold the sealing power of the Melchizedek priesthood. And clearly he made a deep impression on the Israelites as he is frequently mentioned throughout scripture and the Jews believe that he will and would return. In Malachi chapter four, verse five, it says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. As a consequence, many people, many Jews, mistook Jesus for Elijah returning. And even today still, he is an invited guest that they leave an empty seat open for who the Jews expect to still return. However, we learn because of Joseph Smith translation that the Elijah they think that they are waiting to return is not actually quite accurate. So the the name Elijah in Hebrew is Elijah. However, the New Testament Greek version is Elias. So Elias can mean the actual prophet Elijah. 
Only once do we hear about a prophet that actually was named Elias that lived in the days of Abraham, who then committed the dispensation of the gospel to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. However, that's really only used the one time. So usually it either means Elijah, the actual prophet, or Elias also means forerunner or preparer of the way. And so that so the term Elias is used to reference other people who acted as forerunners. Elijah was present on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and John the Baptist with the Savior and Peter, James, and John in order to confer the keys of the priesthood. But Jesus explained later to Peter, James, and John that the Elias prophesied to return to the Jews that we read before was actually John the Baptist using being called the name Elias, which means prepare that he prepared the way that he was a forerunner. So it wasn't really Elijah that they are waiting for. They think that's who they're waiting for, but it's actually John the Baptist. And as we know, they didn't receive John the Baptist. But going back to the fact that Elijah was present on the Mount of Transfiguration in order to confer the the sealing keys to Peter, James, and John, isn't it so cool how orderly the Lord is? Think about the New Testament. First came John the Baptist to prepare the way. Then came Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration to restore the fullness of the priesthood. And then came the Messiah with the fullness of power in his resurrection. And then we have the same order in this new restored dispensation. John the Baptist came first to baptize Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith. And then Elijah appeared in the Kirtland Temple to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to confer that same priesthood authority, that sealing authority back here on the earth. And then this dispensation will culminate in the return of the Savior. So we've got the same order each time. And then that leaves me with what the power, what Elijah, what the power of Elijah has to do with us today. The power of Elijah is the sealing power of the priesthood, which things are bound or loosed on earth are bound or loosed in heaven. So our temple work, that is the power of Elijah. Okay. So now that we've learned a little bit more about who Elijah is and why he is important, aside from the fact that he was a great prophet in the old Testament, And remember that last week we already talked about kind of the first story as he's introduced. We talked about the famine that he declared in the land and then he went to the brook and was fed by ravens and then he went to the widow and and um, was fed by the widow. That's what last week's episode was about. And so we're going to pick up where we left off. So he stayed with the widow and her son for a while. And it's at this point that the Lord tells Elijah that he needs to come out of hiding and reveal himself to Ahab. So he does. And In the meantime, we have Ahab and a governor. I'm not really sure exactly what that position means at their time, but the governor Obadiah and Ahab the king start to go on a journey. And what they're doing is they need to search for new pasture land for their flocks and herds. They have a piece of land in front of them and Ahab says, okay, you go that way, I'll go this way, and then we'll meet back and and figure out who found the better pasture land for, for our animals. And so Obadiah goes a certain way and along his way, he runs into Elijah and he recognizes Elijah. He, they seem to be happy to see each other. And it's then that Elijah asks Obadiah to go back to Ahab and tell him that he is there. And Obadiah is kind of upset by this request because Elijah has a reputation for disappearing as soon as he's found. And Obadiah basically says, 
do you want me to die? I'm going to go tell Ahab. And then by the time Ahab gets back, you're not going to be here anymore. And, and don't you know how faithful I've been? I, I hid a hundred prophets while Jezebel was, was killing all of them. And I, I hid them in a cave and fed them. And Elijah promises Obadiah that no, this time I really, I do want to see Ahab and I will be here when he gets back. So Ahab comes and I love what he says whenever he sees Elijah. He says, art thou he that troubleth Israel? And Elijah answered saying, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and thou hast followed Balaam. As I read that, I was struck how that's kind of a lot of what the world, I feel like the the culture of the world says to religion in general. They blame a lot on religion and the pressures of religion and and the commandments and and the shame or guilt associated with feeling like you need to follow the commandments and they say no, religion is oppressive and makes people sad and all of those things. So the world might say to someone who adheres to religion, adheres to truth, that we are troubling the world. And I'm often struck when I think about the problems in the world that a lot of it could be solved, just like this famine for Ahab, a lot of it could be solved just by returning to the Lord and following the commandments. Okay, so it's at this point that Elijah challenges Ahab. He tells him to gather 450 of his prophets of Baal. And there are different ways to pronounce that. There's Baal, 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 <laughs> but I'm going to say Baal. Um, so gather 450 of those prophets and also 400 other wise Baal men, I guess, and bring them to this place and gather Israel and he has a challenge for them. So Ahab agrees to do this. He gathers the people. He gathers the prophets of, of Baal. And when the people get there, Elijah says this great thing. He says, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. How often do we see ourselves doing that, halting between two opinions. We want to serve God. We want to obey the commandments, but we also want to be accepted by the world. And so we kind of waffle between the two and try to sugarcoat the commandments of God or caveat the commandments of God. So next, Elijah tells them that they should go first. He says, build an altar and ask Baal to light it on fire. And so they do this. They do this all day. And about about midday, Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud for he is God. Either he is talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. So, so basically he's saying, hey, you guys need to talk louder probably because, you know, maybe he's sleeping or traveling or talking to someone else. And I just think that's great. So by the time we reach evening, the time of sacrifice, then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah doesn't just build an altar. He builds an altar with kind of a trough in the middle. And he commands that it be completely filled until it's overflowed with water. And then in chapter 18, verse 37, and sorry, I don't think I said that. We're in 1 Kings 18 and 19. So verse 37, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. So he is asking the Lord for this witness to the people that he has is giving them a chance to repent. 
Then it says in verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So clearly we have the Lord God and the people fall on their face and they repent. Elijah then commands that all of the prophets of Baal be killed and then Elijah makes his way back to the city Jerusalem, and as does Ahab, and that's where Jezebel is. And Ahab goes and he tells Jezebel everything, and she is angry, and she vows to kill Elijah within 24 hours. So Elijah runs with his with his servant. He leaves his servant in Judah, which remember we've been talking about being in Israel. So they go to the southern kingdom, Judah. He leaves his servant there, and then Elijah goes out in the wilderness. Chapter 19, verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. So Elijah is feeling broken. He's feeling lonely. He's feeling like a failure. He's exhausted. He is feeling like all of his his efforts are futile. He's feeling frustrated and invaluable, and perhaps he's even feeling like he knows better than the Lord. He's saying, uh, I should just die. It's enough. Now, I know all of us have felt some degree of that. Maybe not maybe not to the point that we, we want to die, but maybe we all have had times in our lives when we feel lonely and we feel failure and we feel frustrated and perhaps we feel like we know better than the Lord. And I don't mean that in a in a terribly prideful way. I just mean that sometimes with our limited perspective, perhaps we don't see a better way out. And I think that's how Elijah was feeling. He felt as though he had done all that he was supposed to, all that he could, and that this was really the the only option that it was enough that he he needed he wanted to leave and that he had done all that he needed to do elder ukdorf said this of men but i think it applies equally to women so as he's talking about men remember that we're i'm just applying this to all of us men and women experience feelings of guilt depression and failure we might pretend that these feelings don't bother us but they do We can feel so burdened by our failures and shortcomings that we begin to think that we will never be able to succeed. We might even assume that because we have fallen before, falling is our destiny. I have watched men filled with potential and grace disengage from the challenging work of building the kingdom of God because they had failed a time or two. These were men of promise who could have been exceptional priesthood holders and servants of God. But because they stumbled and became discouraged, they withdrew from their priesthood commitments and pursued other, less worthy endeavors. And thus they go on, living only a shadow of the life they could have led, never rising to the potential that is their birthright. As the poet lamented, these are among those unfortunate souls who die with most of their music still in them. Do you have any failure in your life that has led you to feel defeated? like you're destined to only fail. That has led you to think like Elijah, it is enough. Let's read what happens next. Chapter 19, verses 5 through 8. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked and beheld, 
There was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did drink and eat, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb the mount of God. So a couple things there. The angel came to strengthen him and give him rest. Because the angel said, the journey is too great for thee. The Lord didn't start with just telling Elijah to suck it up and get moving. He gave him rest. He gave him food to eat. He gave him water. In what ways does the Lord answer your prayers for deliverance from trials with peace and comfort and and love and access to power? First and foremost, I think we have the sacrament every week, quite literally bread and water. The sacrament is given to us to renew our covenants and to give us power and strength to rejuvenate us so that we can go on. We're also given the scriptures. We're given prayer. We're given temples. We're given ministering brothers and sisters, ward families, friends. We're given the Sabbath day to rejuvenate us and strengthen us. Next in verse 9, it says, And he came hither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? So Elijah has come to Mount Sinai. And the Lord asks him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I have been very jealous, which means faithful. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's feeling pretty sorry for himself, and and granted, he's seeking the Lord and he has done a lot, but he is trying to forsake at this point his responsibilities because he feels like he's failing. He feels like he no longer has control over anything by asking the Lord to end his life. And the Lord's reply is, Elijah, what doest thou here? What are you doing here? Do you think that the Lord would ever ask you this question? What are you doing here? And it's likely not a physical place. Perhaps it's a spiritual place. What are you doing here? Where do we run to when we try to run away from our responsibilities, when we feel like failures or we feel like things are out of control? Do we end up in a spiritually poor spot? Do we run to social media to help us feel better or probably worse, but it's just a coping mechanism? Do we run to self-pitying thoughts? Do we run to pornography or any number of sins that is something that we revert to when we feel like our efforts are futile and that we're failing? Something that maybe can give us a hit of adrenaline or at least can comfort us in some weird, sick way that, that whatever, we don't need to try anyway. All right, next, verse 11. And this is the Lord speaking. He said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him, 
and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah then repeats everything he had said before, and the Lord has an interesting reply. The Lord says, Go to Damascus, anoint a future king of Israel and Syria, and anoint the next prophet, Elisha. And then the Lord reminds Elijah of something really important. He says in verse 18, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So the Lord reminds him, A, you have things to do. Go and do these things. And B, you are not alone. And remember how emphatically Elijah insisted that he was alone. He said, And I, even I only am left. And here the Lord is reminding him, No, you are not the only one left. There are 7,000 that have not worshipped Baal, that still have their hearts turned to me. So why does the Lord use a still, small voice to communicate with Elijah and with us? When are we most likely to actually hear and listen to the Lord? Is it when we're loud? When we're focused on everything around us? No, the Lord waits until we are humble and submissive and meek and quiet inside. It's then that we are really going to be able to take in and listen to what he has to say. Remember in 3 Nephi, when the Lord spoke to the people after all of the destruction, after they had been humbled, it says in 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 3, And it came to pass, while they were thus conversing one with another, they heard a voice, as if it came out of heaven, and they cast their eyes round about, for they understood not the voice which they heard. And it was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to their very soul, and did cause their hearts to burn. We need to be in the right spiritual place in order to hear the Lord. Does that mean that we haven't messed up horribly? We might be there where we've messed up so terribly. But if we are humble, if we submit to the Lord, that we are willing to do whatever he tells us to do, that's when that still small voice is able to pierce our hearts. Isn't it interesting to think that us hearing that still small voice has less to do with the voice and more to do if we are quiet enough, if we are willing enough and humble enough to hear it. So with that still small voice, what does the Lord command Elijah to do? He commands him to go and do. Remember that Elijah is feeling hopeless at this point. Remember last week when we were talking about the widow gathering sticks so that she and her son could make their last meal and die? She was feeling pretty hopeless, like there wasn't a better end in sight. And Elijah's feeling the same way. And just like the widow, he was commanded to go and do. The answer is not that your work ends now because you're feeling exhausted and alone and like a failure. The Lord would tell you too, you are not alone and you have things to do. 
Elijah did what the widow did. You remember when it said, and she went and did? Well, after this, Elijah went and did. He anointed the next king of Syria and Israel, and he anointed the next prophet, Elisha, and trained him. And we don't know exactly how long after this point that Elisha lived before he was translated, but the estimates I found were between 10 and 15 years. And after these chapters, we get a bunch of things that he went and did. And after he went and did and endured to the end, he was given the reward of being translated up to the Lord. My question for you today is three parts. One, what resources has the Lord given you to feed you and strengthen you and give you rest? Because they are there. Number two, what areas in your life would the Lord ask you, what doest thou here? We all have them. And number three, what are the commands that the Lord has given you to go and do? Elder Uchtdorf said, Our destiny is not determined by the number of times we stumble, but by the number of times we rise up, dust ourselves off, and move forward. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.